Stand out from the crowd by gaining the right experience. The next step in your cybersecurity journey starts with Cybrary. Sign up for the Insider Pro or Teams product to learn and develop skills and reach your goals. You're listening to the 401 Access Denied podcast. I'm Mike Rowan, VP of Engineering and CISO at Cybrary. Please join me and my co-host, Joseph Carson, Chief Security Scientist at Thycotic, as we discuss the latest news and attempt to make cybersecurity accessible, usable, and fun. Be sure to check back every two weeks for new episodes. Hi, everyone. My name is Joseph Carson, Chief Security Scientist here at Thycotic, and I'm really excited to bring you our latest show of 401 Access tonight. We have some fantastic guests uh, for you today who we're going to be really getting into discussing a very health topic and something that you know may have consequences for years to come. And I'm joined here with my awesome co-host of the show, Mike Rune, you want to give a little bit of update into yourself, uh, how amazing you are in a new studio. <laughs> yeah, thanks. So yeah, so Mike Rune, VP of Engineering and CISO here at Cyberary. Um, and today we have a couple of guests from uh, our respective companies. Uh, I'll start with uh, Jonathan Myers. Uh, Jonathan, if you want to give a quick intro. Hey, I'm Jonathan Myers. I'm the uh, Principal Infrastructure Engineer here at Cyberary and also the Head of IT. Um, so yeah, great. glad to be here. And, and our other guest starts. Hi, my name is Terrence Jackson, and I'm the Chief Information Security and Privacy Officer at Dicotic. Awesome. And we're here to have a really intriguing discussion. We'll see where this goes today, but we're here to talk about solar winds and the sunburst uh, incident that happened going back into early December, um, where really basically when we started finding out was when FireEye disclosed that they had become the victim of a security incident. And for me, you know, FireEye are one of the best in the industry of what they do. They have some awesome instant responders. Um, they have amazing uh, malware analysts. And for them to become a victim um, of an incident was quite, you know, it, it's not never surprising because ultimately all companies will have security incidents. We will see them over time. Um, and, but what was kind of surprising here was, you know, how quick FireEye were to disclose it and announce it and, you know, make it available. And through their investigation, of course, they found out that it became through a supply chain attack, ultimately kind of going back into solar winds. And as more information was made available, we started saying that this has the potential for me of being you know, one of the biggest software industry supply chain hacks to date in history with over 18,000 initial victims that were you know, victims of that stage one campaign portion. And we'll get into some bit more details into really what happened in the background and give you the latest information we have today. I mean, as we're recording today in January, uh, which is right now the 21st of January, you know, this is where we're recording. Um, every day, there's a new piece of information being made available to us. And I think already um, of this week, I'm saying, I think it was the fifth or sixth biggest piece of news announcements. And I always go back to, you know, one of the people I respect in our industry, you know, being Brad Smith, I've known for quite a number of years. Um, he was the president at Microsoft. And he stated that this is the, probably the, a mass indiscriminate, indiscriminate global assault on the industry that we've ever seen before. And he made that announcement at the CES Technology Trade Show a few weeks ago in the keynote. And I think this has many major consequences that we're seeing. And just kind of, you know, for the audience or co-host here, do you want to provide you know some kind of, of your view of what you're saying? You know what's what's the potential, what's the risk we're having here in regards to this latest uh, uh, you know the incident that we're seeing. 
I'll pass over to Terrence to give the first first comment. Sure. Um, you know, I, I've been saying for years, you know, you're only as strong as your weakest link. And, you know, SolarWinds is very popular, uh, you know, network monitoring performance tool, um, various companies from, you know, your Fortune 100 companies to half of the federal government uh, <laughs> had SolarWinds deployed in their infrastructure. So, you know, I, I think this attack was very methodical. And, um, and how it was executed and, you know, exploiting weaknesses in the, you know, software development uh, pipeline. And, you know, the, we, we, we always talk about in the industry dwell time. Um, there was massive dwell time around this. And it's, uh, as you mentioned, new, new news comes out every day, every week. I think that's going to continually, uh, be the case for the remainder of this year because we don't know what other Trojans have been left behind or deployed that are just, you know, kind of in a sit and wait state. But I think this was kind of a wake-up call uh, for, for all of us security practitioners to, you know, re reiterate trust but verify, especially when it comes to our supply chains. You know, each of our companies relies on, you know, some type of cloud or SaaS-based infrastructure to operate. And, you know, we, we can't control a lot of the underlying infrastructure in that. And, you know, obviously SolarWinds pushed out an update and companies say, hey, we tell everybody to patch, patch, patch. Um, but we just have to ensure, you know, that we're doing at least as much due diligence as we can when we're, you know, vetting and uh, evaluating, you know, new vendors. But also, you know, security is a team sport. Um, so I think this is also an opportunity for us to get tighter as a community and uh, just help each other out when incidents like this, you know, occur. Solar, solar winds are a friend in the industry. I mean, that's, you know, we're all friends. We're all here to achieve the same goal. We're all here to make the world a safer place. Um, you know, we do get competitive. We, you know, trying to sometimes compete with the same customers and so forth. But at the same time, our goal is to make the world a safer place in regards to the digital, um, you know, place that we actually do our work in in everyday um, lives. Um, and for me, I think, you know, SolarWinds and the customers of SolarWinds are not just the victims here. It's the entire software industry. We, you know, this is the victim. Um, I'd just like to get uh, Jonathan and um, some of your insights or views and, and what your you know, kind of thoughts and opinions are of the current incidents to date. Yeah, I think it's, um, it's pretty interesting. I think we've kind of started to see like murmurs, well, like bubbling of supply chain stuff kind of starting to happen in the industry, right? Like, especially with a bunch of companies that use like the uh, the node frameworks and like those dependency tree hells um, and starting to see, like, I think this just kind of brought to light a lot of the stuff that people were kind of thinking that could happen. It's like, oh, well, we use these 12,000 dependencies in our UI app for node. And it's like, well, what if one of those is compromised? And I think this is effectively that kind of on a much grander scale for the most part. Um, but my kind of, my kind of first take on a lot of this stuff is how could you, I don't even know like how a company that's uh, like has solar winds in there now, like could have prevented this, right? Like you would have trusted solar winds, like your due diligence is like, Oh, it's solar winds. Like, cool. Like, let me see all your security creds. Like, I don't know where you would have been able to like, even start to think about like, how do I stop this? Um, especially like teams aren't just the largest teams ever that just have an entire body to throw at a software vendor for a week and be like, Hey, let's check out the security update. Um, but yeah, like, I also come from the government side of the house and it's like, I remember 
you know, installing software on CD-ROM drives and like scanning all of those and doing all of that type mm-hmm. of stuff. And I still don't think that would have caught any of this, like doing manual scans of these packages. And so it's, I think like what you said, like it's very, it's very much like an industry, like we're all on the same team. How can we start to like iterate on this faster and kind of predict these things and stuff like that? So. Absolutely. I think this really needs a, an industry revolution to happen for us to all to come together and find out, you know, analyze this as much depth as we possibly can. And really come together and find a way forward. Because for me, it's really, I've, I've been in the patch management business for 20 years. And for me, it's broken our patch software update process. This whole incident has raised that to the surface. Um, and if we kind of go back just into, into showing how sophisticated this was and just going you know, over what you know, Turner had mentioned, it, it was really kind of like, you know, this was a surgery um, that was very, very sophisticated, very well planned, very well executed. Um, even dating back, I mean, this has been several, this has been several years in the planning. Um, only possibility of being either a nation state or a nation state back group could have been really possible to pull this off. Where you know, I I always look at when I'm doing this response, I get into the motives and the, and the intentions behind this. And there's many motives here. Um, what we're seeing is you know, there's financial motives that appears to be happening um, in the news today that they're now selling you know parts of the source code off of the victims that they've had. Uh, so there seems to be financial participation here. Um, in, you know, intellectual property theft. As well, you've got espionage, you have potential of pre-staging or preemptive attacks in the future. There's so many possible motives in the background here. It's really hard to really find out what was the true. I always find that there's always one true motive. And I think we're really, you know, getting to a point where that hasn't really came to the surface yet. When we get into looking at, to your point, uh, Jonathan, I don't think anyone could have prevented this. I think you could have react. You Once you became a victim, you could react to it and you could see it later if you have some controls in place. But stopping it from happening, you know, we look at, it, it, it goes back to, I think, the first domain registration of the C2 was back in 2018. Um, then you get into, in 2019, that already get into access to the build repo uh, in SolarWinds and started just analyzing, intelligently gathering information about how SolarWinds actually develop and build and compile code. Just watching and learning and watching and learning and perfecting it to the point is, is that when they eventually actually put Trojan in place in the malware, it was actually the point where it actually looked like SolarWinds code. It actually, to a developer looking at that, would not have been able to tell the difference. And then, of course, getting digitally signed and actually making sure it was done in runtime during the, only the compilation process. And then ultimately, you know, like most companies, once you get that signed build, um, you know, you want companies to update it. And it was IT who downloaded it into those companies and distributed it to the servers. It was IT that was actually in the process of that, you know, and sitting for two, it was 12 to 14 days of doing nothing, that, you know, trying to stay obfuscation, you know, staying hidden. Um, this was stealthy in design. So for me, this kind of, it was, it was done to basically very detailed surgery. Um, this has been years in the planning and uh, potentially probably using some of the blueprints of previous attacks, whether it being, coming off the back of Stuxnet or some of the things that we saw in the, uh, not Petcha time, uh, of course, that was a software update uh, attack as well. And even going back into, I think it was 2004 Olympics where it was in Greece or somewhere around that time where they also used a supply chain attack in the Siemens equipment. For me, this has probably taken a lot of what we've seen over the years, but really perfected it. So, Mike, it just kind of, you know, when you're listening to that perspective and, you know, you being involved in a lot of software development, um, you know, what, you know, how could companies really kind of respond to that? Well, before I get into that, I think um, just sort of some things that I thought were really interesting about the 
the attack overall and sort of from that software engineering perspective, right? They didn't just go straight to it, right? They weren't, they, they did a test, they did test runs, made sure they'd be able to fly under the radar. Um, I think, and um, happy to happy to be told I'm wrong, but I think we might be giving them a little bit too much credit with regard to how much time they've been planning this specific attack. I think if I was doing this type of activity, I would have hundreds of command and control domains registered that I'd be registering well in advance of maybe ever needing them just so that they're there. The DNS records are there. They've been sitting there for years dormant, just waiting for, hey, I finally found an attack. I finally found a vector. What do I have in my, you know, what, what can I use to, to, that I've already sort of set up? So, and I think that, like, from a motive perspe- perspective, as you said, there's so many possible motivations that I think if I was an attacker, like any of those motive, like if I'm a nation state, right? I probably have all of those motivations. And so any, I don't know that we can sort of focus in on what was the specific one. I think it was, hey, let's try and fu- like, let's go for the broadest attack that we can or find a target that gives us the most opportunity. I mean, that's sort of uh, how I would go about doing this and, and sort of, and so I think when you're looking at why solar wins and who are, it's like, well, obviously they're a great target because from there, they're a great launching pad into so much collateral, you know, what we said was collateral damage, whether it was Microsoft or whomever, who just, you just get to hop and skip and jump from there into so many other places. Yeah. And I just kind of, to your point, Mike, I think you mentioned an important piece there. And for me is that, you know, we all have to be looking for these attacks in our environments. We have to be proactively right now looking. And even if you're not a customer of SolarWinds, you should be concerned and looking for this because what we're finding is, is that you might be a customer of a customer of SolarWinds. And this flows down. This is a domino effect. Is that, you know, if you're if the supplier of you is a customer um, who you're dealing with, and that might be a cloud customer, it might be a SaaS-based customer, you should be concerned and you should be actually proactively looking to make sure that you're not a, a, a secondary victim or even a third victim of this because this has the consequences because, you know, we're all interconnected. We're all an industry, you know, that, you know, many companies out there have so many vendors and they're, the vendors they deal with are also working with many vendors. So this is all a massive interconnected web of, of different suppliers and third parties and, and, and source code and, and libraries that, you know, the consequence of this is, you know, potentially everyone could be a victim at some point. Yeah, I mean, I think the web is in, the web of this is, is interesting, right? Because even if you're not a SolarWinds customer, you, like, let's just take the Microsoft route, right? Microsoft was impacted. Uh, who doesn't have someone in their supply chain? Even if we're not directly using Microsoft, which we're not, uh, there's no one in our supply chain. Like, there's no way that Microsoft is not involved somehow in some in something that we do. And so, I think that it's the potential is every almost every it, every tech company is is impacted by this, and not and any company that uses technology. Yeah, Tur- Turner, right. so I'd like to get to your your, <laughs> yeah. your thoughts on that as well. You know, Microsoft being collateral damage here is in your in your kind of thoughts. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, um, you know, a, a couple of things. You know, the, the low and slower approach uh, that this attack took should be, um, you know, something that we, we really pay attention to. Because if you look at the the, the victims that we know about in that 18,000 number, um, FireEye being one, these guys have some of the most sophisticated tools, technology, um, smart people, and they missed it. So from that perspective, I think there are some areas of opportunities for the industry on where we can all improve. You know, 
ML, AI. We, we <laughs> for the last five, six, seven years, next gen this. Um, and to my knowledge, all of that failed. <laughs> I mean, yeah. all of it failed. Um, well, that's, so, that's, one, that's one you should listen to one of our other episodes. <laughs> <laughs> so I, I think, and just pivoting back to, the, to Microsoft, Microsoft's been kind of all over this since, you know, early on. And some of the things that they did by, uh, you know, revoking domains and getting those seized and taken down and, you know, pushing out ILCs to their customers that were, you know, using their endpoint security products, I think, you know, is a good model of security being a team sport and them making the Intel readily available to their customers. And even to the point now, they're enabling certain uh, features by default to help customers better protect right. their environments. And I think that's a model that as an industry, you know, being the CISO of a, of a product, the cybersecurity product company that we can all do better and being more responsible and, and enabling our customers to respond to threats, not yeah. if, but when they happen. Um, but yeah, I, I absolutely think Microsoft was collateral damage. I think that, you know, they ended up in a bunch of environments that were using, you know, Office 365 and they had SAML and MFA configured and they would, you know, they, they got curious and um, <laughs> they were like, oh, oh, this actually worked. And they waited. It worked again. And then they kind of did that. Who am I? Where am I? Okay. Is Office 365 in play? Let's go forth. And, you know, they bypassed, you know, this is not a knock on any MFA vendor, but, you know, Duo and, and others. But if they were using SAML off and tokens, um, it was kind of like game over. So single sign on out the window. <laughs> exactly. It's a single sign off the attacker. That's what you're looking at. <laughs> so. <laughs> Exactly. So um, I think there are a lot of takeaways for us as security practitioners to, to look at. And, you know, obviously when this happened, um, everybody, you know, board and, you know, all the execs and everybody got the same question. You know, are we a sole and customer <laughs> and <laughs> how secure are we? And, um, you know, I think everybody is, is going through that process of reevaluating controls and, and, and looking at intel that's available. Mm-hmm. You know, FireEye's done a very good job in yeah. and, and, uh, releasing reports. They released one yesterday as well as Microsoft. But, you know, threat intel, I believe, is becoming more important uh, to be incorporated mm-hmm. into our security programs. Um, you know, I've seen a, a fair amount of... Uh, you know, email traffic from, from threat and tail vendors nowadays and, you know, making that a part of your program, which, you know, we, we already had. But I, I think it's, it's a pivot point for the industry, um, you know, the people, process, and technologies. I think we've gotten processes down, um, the people problem we're solving, um, but the tech is is not a magic bullet in any stretch of the imagination. And I think this kind of turned... That, that that theory upside down that, you know, what what if you're a security vendor or the tool that you use to monitor the, the you know, the status of your environment gets compromised? Uh, what happens then? So, um, and unfortunately, you know, I don't think there's a clear cut answer to that, but it definitely involves all three of, you know, the people, process, and technology. Absolutely. I just want to bring Jonathan, Jonathan in two, two kind of yeah. uh, areas for you uh, that like, get your thoughts on. Is one, you know, since this did compromise SAML token forgery, which is a big concern for me because it, it does allow not only the attacker to basically gain access to, you know, the, the, the victim's own infrastructure, but also pivot 
so many different areas, whether being into cloud applications, hosting applications, SaaS, anything that basically organizations have really put in their service provider in regards to their single sign-on. And the second part of that as well is that, you know, this did leverage a digital certificate. Um, you know, how do we how do we trust digital certificates going? Can we trust digital certificates going forward? Um, so I'd like to get your your thoughts on that and those two items um, and, and anything else that's on your mind as well. Yeah. So what's interesting, um, I think, I don't know if this has been confirmed or denied, but uh, some of the reports coming out of FireEye was how they originally caught it. And one of them is these guys requested a multi-factor token and it triggered an alarm because there was no employee that was like in their system that had been assigned this token. Mm -hmm. And so I would say that like tokens did do some sort of like slowing down, right? Because like once they had that, I think if they had that full token that was authorized, I think it was, it'd been game over. Um, And so I think that's pretty interesting, but like, that's weird. And I think the way that got caught was still like a human that sat there and said, wait, like, right. Cause like if somebody wasn't monitoring that and it just sat there in like the unassigned bucket, you know, and was still authorized. I think that's a, that's a very, very interesting sort of play. Um, And then back into like the SAML stuff. I think, I think that's like a, it's like a weird, it's like a weird problem to solve for because it's just like, Oh, they have the keys to your house. Right. Like it's, it's like, how do I do this? Like it starts to go back that I think we're going to start um, hopefully maybe as an idea is like you're migrating to this like person as an identity and there's no longer, right? Like I think one of the weird things is as like IT admins, you all have multiple sets of credentials that are like least privilege and things like that. And it's like, I think that starts to get in this like weird thing because there's not like this one-to-one match between a person that works for your company and the permissions of the things they can do. And I think this kind of highlights that is like, oh, there's a bunch of accounts out there that don't actually match to a human and they're out there doing things in an environment. Like how do we start to like ensure that it's like a one-to-one relationship? And I think things like physical security keys, where it's like you got to push a button physically that's like that lets you in. I think that starting to kind of implement those on much higher levels of access and things like that starts to get to that point. Um, The certificate problem is a huge problem. Um, I think we've slowly been moving that way, right? Like um, I think certain things in the certificate world are starting to move that way. I think it's just very slow rolling, right? Like with the, the whole let's encrypt and the ability to like automatically generate certs and things like that. I think you can start to eliminate a lot of it if like that infrastructure kind of gets baked in. And so now you're turning certificates every like day or 12 hours or six hours. And there's a, there's a method to kind of ensure that like, as soon as a key has been doomed and compromised that like, there's a way to revoke it without breaking everything in the Mm -hmm. system and down the lines. And I think kind of getting to a point where we're kind of like rotating things a lot faster than we kind of thought about in the past is an interesting strategy kind of moving forward for that. Yeah. Yeah, I I think, I think with the rotate, right. At some point there's some, there's still some key, there's some, there's something right up chain. Like you always have that like potential of like, well, okay. So these certificates are rotating all the time. It's like sort of, so going up the line. And I think that's where it gets, trickier and trickier. And, you know, Joe and I have talked about, you know, things that people are good at and things that people are not good at, like when it comes to passwords and, and having an identity so that I don't have to put in a password, but it's more of a cert-based system. But then this sort of gets into almost the exact opposite of that. Like it, some, sometimes a human in the system is the thing that's going to pull the kill switch because they can recognize this just doesn't make sense. 
like this isn't right like what happened at, at FireEye right like that's what ultimately happened and I don't know I know there's no amount of AI or ML that's gonna that's gonna solve those problems and you know ML and AI that type of stuff that'll find it after it's already released that'll sort of see it in action and be like oh that looks unusual but by that point it would have already been too late again so you know I, right, I don't know right. how we sort of deal with that I believe training it, training it yeah right and, and you know to that point AI and ML in its current iteration is, is nothing but <laughs> you know, models that have been trained. So automation. Uh, it, it, exactly. <laughs> it's automation. So it, it's, it's, that's why I was like, it's, it, it kind of, it is, but it isn't, you know? Um, but, you know, I'm curious of what your perspectives are on now, because it's, you know, the industry, you know, for the last 10 plus years has been vulnerability management, patch, 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 patch. So now <laughs> what, what, what do we do? Are we? <laughs> I'm buying a 1970s yeah. car and moving to Montana. That's that's my solution. <laughs> that's the challenge, is it? Because because we we do software updates and security patches, the exact same way. The process is exactly the same, and the delivery mechanism is exactly the same. And, and I worked on you know I, I came up you know I always had this this fun terminology is that you know it used to be patched you know when 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 Microsoft released their patch Tuesday and it comes out you, you would uh, you know test it Wednesday, uh, pilot it on Thursday, roll it out Friday, and then you'd burst into tears on Saturday because it failed. And then you're using your Sunday for rolling back. <laughs> and then you're testing it again on Monday, the new patch, and then you're rolling it out Tuesday. And then it's it's repeat. Uh, but we treat the software update, new feature functionality follows that same process and path. And it's the same signature to the same uh, compilation process. Um, and, and we want people to apply the software updates fast. We don't want them to delay because they're already exposed vulnerabilities. You mean you mean their security updates? I mean and, and, updates, correct? Well, and I think the reason, and, and it's funny because I I'm putting a, like DevSecOps is all about like let's treat our security updates the same way we treat our software updates in a lot of ways, right? Like if we want to shift software developers to being more responsive to security problems, then what we're doing is we're shifting those identifications and treating them just like any other bug, right? We shift it into the into the testing, into all sorts of things, into the CICD, into their IDE, so they like, hey, while you're fixing this other thing, here's a secure, you know, update the dependency on this package that we use because there's a security update. There's really fundamentally, there's no difference between uh, a security update and a bug fix, right? Like we can get into new features and new whatever, yeah. but fundamentally they're the same thing. And so I think we do want to continue to move them together, and from a from a like as a someone who had to deal with like enterprise software releases, the like the more you can sort of put in the release, the better. You're not going to you you can't expect a customer to like. And Jonathan knows because he was on the on the on the <laughs> installing end of this, right? We had customers that were running the same things for for months because they didn't they weren't interested in those new features or whatever. So it you want to have it, like for enterprise software, you want to have fewer releases. And so the more you can sort of bundle together to get those companies yeah. to up, update and upgrade is the right thing. And obviously security patches like, oh, this is a vulnerability that needs to be patched immediately falls outside of that. But yeah. I think that's I think where it's going to be a struggle. Yeah, I think we do really need, you know, we talk about zero trust and I, I, I hate the terminology zero trust. It's not my biggest, you know, favorite term. I prefer looking at it from building trust because ultimately we want to establish a trust framework. So it's all about building trust. Um, and you know, for software update and patch security updates and all those processes, 
uh, I'm fundamentally I'm concerned that you know right now how can you trust the next update from another vendor, uh, and how long do you need to test it? Do we need to have it you know put in a sandbox now for you know two weeks a month? How how long do we have to delay that in order to be able to trust it? Um, and this gets into that whole whole scenario is that you know. Do, what are we doing? You know, do we need to get into having more controls and more validation and continuous verification over that process? Because um, right now, I think you know what we're going to start seeing is is that the the, the fallout of this incident, if we're starting to see that Microsoft's now you know a victim and their source code is now exposed. Um, we see Cisco's out there. You know, Malwarebytes have just recently announced, and and Symantec have now re- you know released their latest findings of both the malware. Uh, teardrop and raindrop, which is also, you know, so there's been right now so many malware variants been involved in this particular incident that it gets to the point is it really kind of, where do we go from here? Um, you know, the, all of those source codes that's now been exposed, the attackers are probably now looking for vulnerabilities in those, um, looking for exploits to be able, you know, and then the update again, is the same process as to download an update and patch. So we're in this kind of basically, you know, mouse wheel, a mouse trap of, you know, in, in a kind of continuous process. Where do we really need to evolve? Where do we need to get to? And I think this is where the industry needs to come together. This, this is, must be a collaboration effort uh, for me because I think we're, we're going down this repeat path again in order to solve the problem of yesterday. I mean, I think risk is an important factor, right? So when I'm looking at a like, just forget about what we do to, like, moving forward, but what we do today, right? When we look at some new version or some update, I do look through it and sort of decide like, what's like, what's the, how important is it that we do this timely, right? And if it's a security patch, obviously it has a higher, higher risk. If we, the longer we wait, the more we're exposed. So obviously we need to rush this through, you know, we need to not rush, but get this through faster Mm -hmm. and things that are just feature function can take a, you know, we can have a longer burn and we can make sure and we can test. So I think, there needs to, to your point, and we sort of talked about this a little bit, was I think we need to potentially grade things or pr- provide that risk profile so that me, I'm, I'm on the tail end. It's not like anybody's installing, nobody depends on Cyberry's software, right? We are the leaf on the tree. We depend on everybody else leading up to us, right? And so when we go to make those decisions, what we need in order to decide whether or not we want to upgrade is like, what's the what's the risk what's the potential and and how much risk are we willing to to take on for us and our customers um and so yeah security things are going to have a higher precedence than just features we should be testing longer and, and i think we need a better way of of identifying that communicating that as part of the patch process for automation because right now we could totally automate just update like whenever there's a new version just update uh, and run it through some you know some some smoke tests or do whatever and if it if it doesn't if the house doesn't burn down let's just ship it and we'll deal you know and so there needs to be it needs to be built into the automation there needs to be flags there needs to be some way of, of indicating like a risk profile of some sort i don't know that's just my yeah. thoughts off the top of my head yeah i like to kind of bring Terrence and Jonathan I got a yeah. question on your side as well is that one of the things that you know this the, the original sunburst Malware itself, or you know, it was saying there it had the back door. What was quite impressive about that is, of course, once the payload had been delivered and those stage one victims were started doing this enumeration phase of gathering things like you know um, system information, credential details, you know the administrator SIDs, uh, registry details, it started kind of doing that enumeration of where what environment I am, am I in. What was impressive was is that this actually 
put itself into what was called an, an Orion Improvement Program. It masqueraded as telemetry type of data and actually, and then sending it back in through HTTP. Uh, and it did really, and it used a steganography, steganography, uh, I always get confused, so hard to say that word properly. It's a tongue twister, but uh, it hit itself in basically standard, you know, data configuration information, and then through HTTP sent it off to the command and control, which was located in the U.S., um, so, you know, sometimes you, you, you know, when you're using threat intelligence, you see it going off into countries where you may not do business and that's always a, a flag. Um, or you start seeing new traffic um, that's outside of what you should be monitoring. Um, when your data has been stolen from you or information is being sent to command and control, what things you, do you see? What, what can we do there to prevent our data being taken out? Um, and also to, to get that visibility over potential, you know, malicious uh, network traffic. <laughs> That's a great question, man. Um, one of the things I would say that you know we currently, uh, you know, my team currently does we we have rules in our um, sim around spikes in encrypted traffic that's that's going out and just uh, anomalous activities around increases in network traffic overall. And th this is one of the areas where I would say, you know, ML or AI actually does help us because it's, it's, a, it's able to evaluate that, you know, looking at standard deviations over, um, you know, an amount of time. And it, it, it does detect minute spikes that a human would otherwise ignore. I mean, um, I, so, I would program for, I mean, just to put in there, right? I, I would just program for that, right? I just go for a slow burn. If I know what the algorithms are, then I just go lower and slower. And your AI, your ML won't pick that up. It won't be a spike. It'll look like any other sort of system sort of naturally coming online. They'll which, we'll just sort of have a slight which, increase. Yeah. Which is and, what, what, what happened here. And this, right. you know, is that they masqueraded in you know, telemetry data uh, and also made it look authentic in HTTPs and you know it, it was it was hidden in plain sight which is the which is the challenge here right uh, right so. well uh, <laughs> to that point <laughs> to Sorry. that point uh we we actually paired that with domains never seen mm -hmm. before which I'm, for both of you will probably be like wow that's probably way too noisy um but again <laughs> <laughs> the, the solution that we have actually boils that down right. and does a, a, a layer of analysis on that that's actually curated by a human on the back end. Um, so it's an outsourced service. But at, at the end of the day, if you're in the crosshairs of a nation state, it, it's basically, you know, hold on and, and hope that you can detect it sooner rather than later and you don't have a, you know, nine-month dwell time. Um, but it's, it's still back to a lot of the defense in depth approach, you know, I call it like a, it's an onion man. It, it's layers. There, there won't be a magic bullet, but I, I believe there are things you can do in your environment to detect things quicker. Um, but like I say, if you have somebody determined and they're going low and slow, um, it, it's tough. I mean, I, I wish I had an answer because I would probably would go start another business. Um, <laughs> I don't. So, you know, if you guys want to talk after this, I think there's a blockchain playing in there I mean, somewhere. I mean, I think there's a, there's, a lot of there's a lot of companies that are starting that seem to claim that they have a solution. You know, they, they have the silver bullet. But as uh, I like to, I don't remember who I quote on this, but there's no such thing as a silver bullet. There's there just is lead no bullets. silver bullet. Right, there's just lead bullets, right? Yeah. So we just need enough lead bullets. <laughs> I mean, some, some instances there is, you know, certain solutions or products that will actually prevent it. 
This one, however, because of the multiple techniques you're using, if you go to the MITRE framework and you actually plug this into the MITRE framework, it's basically the whole framework is red. They <laughs> like, use every technique in the book here. So um, an organization trying to really prevent against that, you know, you would have to have almost every solution that's available in the world today. And, and that's that value-wise and costly-wise, that's just not an efficient effect for business. So, you know, same, same, same with yourself, Jonathan, since you're kind yeah. of over infrastructure, you know, what things would you have been looking to in addition to, you know, what uh, Terrence had mentioned? Yeah. So I think the interesting thing that's starting, there's a couple of companies that are kind of starting to come up and you start to get these like reputation scores based on things. Um, and I, I don't think there's that many vendors that kind of do it on domain names and traffic and things like that, where you start to get this, like basically raising the flag on, you know, first time domains been seen and things like that for an actual human to pick up. Like that's still, I think, super noisy. Um, if you can start to tweak a lot of that type of things, um, and then I think the other thing goes back to maybe I'm just like old school and weird and I come from the government side of the house, but like everything is like segregated in networks, right? Like it's, it's very different networks running very different rule engines. And so you have to be in say like for production instances and stuff like that, right? Like I don't, I don't know how we got away from this at some point, but like unbound, like outbound traffic should not be allowed, right? Like you're putting in very specific names of what outbound traffic should be going outside of, you know, the handshake that occurs back to the client. And so like, I think people forget about that now because they're like, oh, well we have, we have a firewall or like, you know, we have some next gen thing and it's like, well, cool, but like outbound traffic can still go talk to whoever it wants. And I think we kind of have gotten away from that. And then, you know, like segregating out your different networks. Like if you have source code on a network, like that's a very different network than like your office where you're just sitting in there kind of doing normal browsing of the webs and things like that. And I think you can start to crank up these like rule engines on existing software to kind of be much more high alert um, when you start to see these things. And I think now we're at the, we're at the space, I think logging and stuff like that's finally caught up to like a reasonable yeah. space where you can actually log every request, even if it's blocked. And like, instead of just like, I guess we used to do in the old days was just drop it, right? Like you would just drop it if it was blocked and you wouldn't have any insight to how many times you were blocking things outside of a little counter that would just tick up. You know, you wouldn't see exactly what was blocked, but now we have this ability to kind of analyze that stuff. And then I think the next step is, this sounds scary, I guess, but like you got to open, like not open source that, but like those logs have to feed into like a larger like threat landscape, right? And I think it has to be almost vendor agnostic, right? Like we can't have these silos of like, you know, you're, you're subscribed to this threat stream and that's where you contribute back your logs. And so only that threat stream is getting better and better. But like they refuse to collaborate with another smaller company that's got a threat stream. And, and I think we're missing all of that, right? Because... The thing that strikes me the most about this this attack was the patience, right? Like, I don't know if I could have ever had that patience because if you think about like standard turnover for cyber employees at companies and things like that, this starts to like outgrow that, right? Like you're looking two to three years maybe at smaller startups and things like that. And if this thing's been sitting there for three, four years, like you're now losing that every time an employee changes. And I think so we need to be as a community kind of better at sharing that type of stuff. So it's kind of available to everybody without, you know, giving up, you know, IP and stuff like that. But I think there's enough ways to like scrub logs and things like that, that you can start to kind of 
you know, buy into like this open community that shares threat streams and intels and things like that. Um, I think that would be an interesting, one of those new open source, like we're going to sell you services on top where it's like, we are open sources. We're going to host this logging platform that does all the analysis and stuff. And then we'll sell you services. I mean, isn't that what the U.S. government, I mean, at some point, like the FBI or whomever has tried to do for U.S. companies, right? Is, hey, if we can sort of collaborate, we, you can trust us for the government. Um, yeah. <laughs> but they said that was one of the, yeah. the reasons this was such a blind eye is because the NSA is not allowed to spy on internal U.S. operations. And this was an internal U.S. operation. Right. And so we lost that entire, our entire security world has been set up to watch stuff leaving the country as opposed to seeing the inner so workings. Yeah. 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 To your point, Jonathan, I think one of, one of the things you get, you know, a lot of the government is outsourced. Right. Um, and that's that's the, the other All side the of it is that it's not just, you know, uh, basically government entities and agencies. There's so much third parties and, and, and uh, uh, outsourced components that the government is actually relying very much on the, the private industry right now. Um, and I, I like your, your you know, concept and theory, you know, not only zero trust inbound, but also outbound. <laughs> so, well, and, it's, and the irony is, right, as we've, as we've you know, as, as Jonathan was talking, yeah. like, it struck me as like, yeah, it's ironic that we've gotten away from this, given the fact that it's so much easier to automate everything. API-driven everything is like the, the way things are going. Everything is configurable. Infrastructure yeah, is code. a little snitch. Right, little yeah. snitch. Do you want to allow this? Yeah. You yeah. know, like, why don't we have that for like production, like infrastructure, like, oh, like this thing requested to go out. Do you want to allow it? Like, cause Joe on his computer terminal wants to hit PGA.com, right? Like, oh, okay. Like yeah, that's yeah. a very easy, right. right. But, but you can do, you can do a reputational based analysis in that. Well, there's no one place you're going to, you can go and get threat intelligence and say, is this something that we know about? Because what was very unique, we go back into um, you know, the, C, the C2, it was actually unique for every customer, every piece of malware that actually created that unique uh, basically, uh, uh, you know, subdomain registration. So it was unique for all of those. So it wasn't this common thing, but um, I think your point but is- But if you it, hashed it, like, I think you could have done some math to been like, could have oh, done. there's something that's generating this that's right, consistent. Right. And right, I think right. the only way you could have run that algorithm to learn that would have been if you had all of these- and Visibility yeah, of all and I of think, them. Yeah. yeah, it's interesting. Is It's a similar problem. That, so we we depend on a vendor. I'm not going to name names, but um, we depend on a vendor to do some things. And they run into that same problem where they were, they only can see what they can see. They can only see traffic that they, you know, that they have control over and they're not plugged into a broader things. So when there was like a DDoS, their, their ability to recognize that is very limited because they can only see, you know, but meanwhile, all those same IPs that are, that are um, involved in that attack are also attacking other things. And if they were just part, plugged into a larger ecosystem, you know, a larger player yeah. who can see more of the traffic across all of the internet, it's clear that those are bad IPs, but, you know, and so they'd be able to respond faster. And I think that yeah. that's where we need to get to is a, a more shared understanding of these domains, these IPs, who, yeah. you know, and, and, and reputation. I think, so I think an interesting thing is where where are the ISPs and the major like tier internet operators and in all of this like where yeah, does yeah, their yeah, responsibility start accountability accountability yeah because yeah, yeah. they see all the traffic right like right. there's the threat intel you need to plug into like I just need <laughs> to plug into AT and T's knock and it'd probably be crazy how many things I'd find and predict and be able to stop and it's weird that like AT and T doesn't sell this right yeah. like. <laughs> 
So, or so, maybe so, they so, do, but we're just not alien. <laughs> <laughs> we're, we're not their intended customer. We don't have a, a, a special court that allows us access to it. Um, but Jonathan, I want to pick up on some of the things you said. I think you know definitely to your point is that you know this needs to be, and, and also Terence mentioned just defense in depth and micro segmentation of culture networks. You shouldn't have this open, basically all connected network, which I I see all too common in many many companies. Is that basically they have these basically everything's connected to the same network. There's no isolation. No, you get a domain administrator account that has access to everything. Um, and, and go back to you know I, I learned my lesson 20 years ago working in a data center that. I should not have an account that has unfederated access to everything across the network. You should have an account that allows you real-time access just in time for the target system, and it should be segmented. You know, this gets into even the kind of areas that should build, you know, build repositories, even be internet connected. Should, should it even be possible to communicate to the internet? Should they be isolated, segmented? Um, and it gets into the big question about even using things like Git repositories and, and shared resources. How do we deal with that going forward? Um, I, I really like your kind of, you know, what you mentioned about the segmentation, um, and definitely how do we do the defense in depth as Terrence mentioned. But for me, it just, in some regards, it does seem to be overly complex. Uh, it'd be a great way to find, you know, simplifications of that. It will, if I can add to that a little bit. So, you know, Jonathan, great, great suggestion. Um, about a year ago, that's exactly what we did. We, if servers don't touch the internet anymore, um, because we, we had seen interesting behaviors from, you know, developers, no, no knock on developers, but um, if, if you're developing all day and you're, you know, on a server and you're accessing multiple resources, are you going to, you know, come back to your local environment to go to PGA.com? Or if you're on the server, hey, at Chrome or, you know, Internet Explorer yes. or whatever is here, I'm just going to watch it here. Um, uh, so we did a, you know, and back to risk, we, we evaluated, is there a need for these servers to actually connect to the Internet? And probably I would say 95% was like, no, they, they don't. Um, you know, we pulled down updates to a centralized location and distribute them within the network. So that actually reduced our attack surface and the noise that we were getting, you know, in our, you know, SIM greatly. It, it didn't make a lot of people happy, <laughs> but they adapted. Uh, that's, a, that's a topic for another podcast. But, um, it just really made everybody just look back and say, oh, well, I guess, you know, servers, we really don't need to browse the internet from a production server. <laughs> and why have we not done this before? But just to that point, um, yeah, it's, it doesn't go anywhere. You can try, but it's like, nope. But we logged a request. Because sometimes that's an uh, uh, area to re-educate someone on like, hey, we saw this come in. You're not in trouble. But this is the reason we don't do that. Exactly. <laughs> yeah. yeah, yeah. yeah. How many times you log into server and you see you're going, why is Chrome sitting here? You know, what's what's why is Adobe Adobe PDF reader on here? We you know what someone installed Microsoft Office. Well, what's funny is what, I what mean, just going back to develop, <laughs> going back to like Access developers database. find a way. Like I was at a place where my local machine was more locked down than the servers. So you better believe, like, I was like, oh, I need to read an article on such and such that I'm trying to work on, and I can't get there from my local machine because my local network's more locked down. I'll just go to the server and go out from there. And then you, and then you find, you know, you're looking at, you know, on the server, and it's like, oh, the documentation's in a PDF. Hmm, okay, let me install Adobe. And then you find out, oh, it comes down. It's, it's zipped. 
No, kept, you just run kept, springs kept, on the. Let's just stick run seven zip on, on it as well. <laughs> so, so all of a sudden you find your servers get bloated with all these additional software that you don't really need on there, and that, now you have more software you need to patch as well. So, right. uh, so absolutely, I mean, the more you lock them down, the more to harden them. And getting to you know, I, I'm really kind of a big fan of, of getting into principle of least privilege. Is that I should not when I log on. One of the things I in the data center that I kind of learned this process. It was we did it in separation of duties. And I realized that I should have the separation of duties within my credentials as well. And I should not have one credential logs into every server that has the same amount of rights. And I should always start with zero and build up to what I need to be able to do. And I should not be under user context. It should always be under basically a delegated change control process. So for me, you know, we need to get into really locking things down and, and preventing communication. And I, th I think temporal is an important part of that. Like putting a temporal time, like the idea of I have this role for a period of time. I'm, like it's not me going into an admin account. It's me being provisioned an admin role for some period of time. And to, you know, for really high risk things, maybe it is a two key system. Like I, like, uh, so the, where Jonathan and I worked at Red Owl, where for a short period of time before Jonathan joined, we were actually more in a legal use case uh, like thing. So we had data that was under literal lock and key in a vault. And like the way we handled that was the 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 disk itself was encrypted and only one per, you know, only a handful of people had access to the encryption key. And then there was only a handful of other people that knew the code to like to unlock the, the change, vault. To change right. yeah. So if I've had the same, you know, it, right. it happens in the gambling industry as well. When you get those uh, the games machines, yeah. in order to provide an update on that, you've got the one key that unlocks it, and then you've got a second key which has changed. Right. So that no one person, you've got that separation of duties. No one person can make the change. Same ATMs um, have that same process. Is that when you go to do, you know, that's why even when money's been transferred, uh, that is all done in, in in teams. Is that no one single person has the keys of the kingdom. And, and I think we can do similar yeah. things, in, a, in especially with automation, with regard to like requesting, like, and build hey, process. Jonathan can see me requesting act, administrative access and be like, yeah, sure, I'm going to approve that. Like, I know it's Mike or whatever. We were just slacking about it in some side channel or whatever it is. And so we can come up with a way where we can sort of give privilege in a way yeah. temporarily and still have, and not really in a way that like makes it really difficult to get stuff done. At 2 a.m., I'm sure it's a different scenario. Let me throw a wrench in that. Yeah, yeah. What if your security team is like one person? Well, right. I mean, that's a problem. Or two people, then, then right? You get, like, cleaner, you get the cleaner to join you. <laughs> yeah, like right. it starts to be, you know, it's like if you're the only security guy, I'd say a smaller company, right? And, you know, you got like four devs, security guy, and then right. like 12 other employees. Like, does the CEO have to approve it? Like, or, I mean, the, the fact is you can have those other devs, like you can get into a role where you can, you can delegate off the responsibility of confirming that Jonathan is Jonathan to almost anyone else in the company. Like, yeah. like anyone who can reasonably trust with that. Right. You're getting into non-repudiation in that process is that you have to make sure that your audit trail cannot be tempered with so that you become truly accountable and that somebody else can provide auditability into your actions. So if you are a single source of, you know, that you need to do all of it, you know, a one-person um, operation, then you need to make sure that your auditability is accountable, that you cannot hide your audit trail. Um, so one, one thing is I'd like to step back a bit yeah, yeah. and we kind of dive back into, because to, I don't think we're going to solve the issue. I think we can just bring in, you know, the problems. And Wait, what are we doing here this, if we're not solving this, it? <laughs> <laughs> I, think, I think that's something that's outside of the podcast uh, that we can solve. <laughs> no, uh, no. Uh, bring, bring world peace and order. 
Um, but at least, you know, hopefully it is in the right direction. And hopefully this is a wake-up call for the industry. Um, I just want to bring it, bring it back to some of the kind of the latest revelations that's come out this week. Um, and kind of even kind of you know, what we recommend even for those victims right now, what things they can do as well in order to maybe, you know, uh, let's say respond to this. So the first thing is, you know, we've heard malware bytes becoming uh, the next victim that came out. We saw that Symantec released the news about their investigation uh, for teardrop and raindrop pieces of malware that they found in, in, in their, their customers. Um, and then even today, we saw, you know, my Twitter feed has been <laughs> inundated with uh, the latest news about now solar leaks, um, about, you know, code up for seal, um, which is a bit of a surprise because then this kind of, to me, is it's likely a nation back group not maybe necessarily a nation you know state actually direct operators it kind of allows me to kind of maybe make that separation because there is there is groups out there that some nation states will you know ask them to do certain activities for them or campaigns and they turn a blind eye to their profiteering and financial you know uh, criminal activities uh, to do so forth um, so based on the revelations that's coming out today, you know, Terrence, Jonathan, and Mike, I'd just like to get your thoughts because it changes the motivation side of things for me. Um, and it kind of raises to me that there's probably multiple groups involved and this isn't a single group. Um, it kind of raises that into that there's potentially we're dealing with multiple groups, maybe infrastructure, maybe malware uh, uh, developers, um, you know, the actual execution payload campaign portion. I, I'm starting to see that the potential of multiple actors here Working in tandem. Um, any, any thoughts, or you know, based on the latest news around what's what we're seeing today? So on the the malware bytes, from what I understand, is it's an old like Office three sixty five package that just happened to get hit. So that's I think that hopefully is more just like kind of collateral. Like it's just it just happened, right? Like it, yeah. they said they didn't touch any production servers. Um, I know the CEO was immediately on Reddit um, as soon yeah. as like that got posted. Like he was there. First comment was like, "Here, I'm here to answer questions." Um, so hopefully they had some segmentation in their stuff, and it was kind of just this random app in the Microsoft ecosystem. But I think it's interesting, like how did like that app in the ecosystem, like if that's like came out of their app store and things like that. That's very very interesting on how it was detected there. Right, like it, nobody else caught it, and it's it's running, and it's basically probably unfettered access to their email is what I'm assuming, if that's how it works. Um, and I think it's going to start causing a lot of people to reevaluate that kind of stuff. Um, I think Google's made some strides in that sort of thing, like um, their new like security heightened thing. I forget what the name they branded as. Um, but it basically blocks all 30 party apps from accessing your Google data um, outside of like the core Google system things. Um, I think that's what uh, the the Biden security team used this year. They used a physical key and they basically locked it down so you couldn't connect it to any third party system to sniff data. Um, and so I think hopefully Microsoft's reevaluating these whole like marketplace apps type situation, yes. right? Because I don't think you could feel comfortable allowing the customer to make the assumption like, yes, I want to allow this access to all my 365 it's data. Wild, like, I think that's very difficult. Yeah. yeah I, I like the Apple right. approach um, in regard. I, I think Apple could be better, um, but I like their approach because they have a fully federated side of things. 
um, when you get into to, to the Google and the marketplace and even the Microsoft apps we're not right now, it's the wild west of plugins, even browsers. Um, I, I get so scared of putting a browser extension in place. Um, I have to spend like hours of research <laughs> watching and monitoring of what it's doing before I even get to trust it. Um, so, Terrence, I'd like to get your thoughts on that side of things as well. Yeah, and then kind of piggyback on what Jonathan said, you know, um, another uh, layer of defense is, you know, we block OAuth apps mm. just to that point. You know, it, everybody's tried to make it a seamless end-user experience for adding apps, but um, again, your end-users aren't going to read what you, they're granting access to in your environment, you know, does this, you know, uh, you know, app that I'm using to draw diagrams need full read access to my email inbox? Uh, probably not. Um, so, but I need this app and I need it now. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. That, that's the mindset, but you right. have to put some guardrails and control, I know, around that, but you know, the, the solo leaks thing, um, I agree with you, Joe, that it, 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 it appears to be a group, you know, behind a nation state. Yeah. Um, but um, FireEye released um, a report yesterday and uh, a new tool set to, to scan, you know, your AD environment. Yeah. So if I had, you know, a recommendation for folks, but use the tools that have been made available, whether it was through uh, CISA or FireEye, to know your exposure, to know if you have any of these underlying issues or configurations in your environment and, and you know, plug the gap um, as fast as you can. You know, use micro segmentation, you know, least privilege. Um, at least make it difficult <laughs> for them because um, they, they may move on to another target. And I know that sounds bad, but it's, it's, it's like the analogy of a house with an alarm sitting next to the house that doesn't have an alarm. You know, if I have a sign in the yard, yeah, he might, oh, okay, I'm going over here to the house that doesn't have the sign in the yard because I don't think they have an alarm. So, yeah. um, I think it's... I that's think why it's I stole my neighbor's sign. All your neighbor's signs are in your but, I mean, I think, um, you know, on the uh, back to that app thing, uh, Terrence, that you were talking about, I think, you know, as CISO, my role is not to say no. It's to say, it's to find a way to yes. And I'm having this conversation actively with someone who wants to use this third-party software. It seems like it's going to really help our sales uh, sales team, right? But it's requesting a level of access to our G Suite that we just don't give to anything, let alone something that's like seems pretty minor, like we, we can get along without. And so the, the, the discussion isn't, no, we can't do that. The discussion is, all right, what's this tool trying to solve? What problem are we trying to solve? And can we find one that meets your needs that requires the right level of access and doesn't require this like, oh, just we'll give us the keys to the castle and trust us. Like, level we'll access. I don't care how much I trust you. Yeah. Like, the fact is, you don't need this access. Why should I give it to you? Right, yeah. right. But to that point, you know, that, that's a valid use case. You know, but when <laughs> random trial sites, somebody's just trying to demo something or even some of the news sites nowadays, they'll give you the option to, you know, sign in with your Microsoft account, sign oh, yeah. in with your Google account. <laughs> and some of the access that these websites want to your email is just, there's no valid business justification for, you know. Yeah, you know, I think there's a big I, difference I, I, between I, I, authenticate, right? Just sign in with versus, yeah. oh, and, and then also give us access and, to. And this this is the, the problem, uh, to, turns to your point, the problem with that is it's, it's not managed. 
It's unfederated access even after you finish the trial. You've actually given it that application, basically authentication, or often in the background where it allows you to communicate even after you may have finished the trial. So you're even exposing yourself to, to that data sharing long after you probably even remembered. You know, who, who goes in and manages those? Who actually goes in and disables them um, after trials and so forth? So, so this gets a, a major challenge. Um, and really, it's for, for me, it's a big concern. Um, it's an easy fix if they start um, putting time limits on the OAuth token, yes, right? Like yes, that's Google. Google can flip that switch tomorrow, yep, right? I would, like I would love for that to happen. Fifteen minutes this is what you yeah. get, and then it's like, cool. Yep. I have to reevaluate, kind of like Apple does with the um, the location services, right? Like yeah. when it first on your iPhone, when it first asks, it just says, "Oh yeah, let them have access to the app." Like. Yeah. Right 15 now. days, 30 days. And then it, year, yeah, but then no, it waits. No longer than a year. Yeah. Yeah. And then it waits a couple of times before you come back in. And then it's like, oh, do you want to continue allowing this or should we should we block it? And I think uh like that kind of approach where it comes back later and ask is an interesting play. Yeah. Absolutely. And so, and so <clears throat> one thing, one thing that you know, for for those right now, the victims out there, you know, all these companies, you know, not even just the customers of Solar Winds, uh, but even you know, the customers of those customers. Is you know is is now potentially one thing that I got used to years ago was was into this process of you know every now and again changing your locks to the door, and for me you know is this a time where many companies should really consider going in and you know migrating to new domain accounts, um, you know taking their domain administrator account, disabling them, and moving to new ones, rotating credentials. Is this a time? I mean, I think this is a pivot time in the industry where we really need to to make it difficult and not make it easy, and this means that. Sometimes we have to look at, you know, disabling the curb, you know, renewing the Kerberos tickets, making sure that all accounts have been logged out of systems, uh, maybe even reboots of systems, and moving, you know, not necessarily, you know, changing user accounts, but those domain credentials and domain administrators that are shared. Maybe this is a time where we really need to go in and proactively move to new accounts, um, you know, and then monitor those accounts for, you know, potential malicious activity. So. Yeah, I think I think it's it's kind of what the government has to do, right? Like there's a lot of reports that are like the only way the government's going to know this stuff's out of their network is to completely rebuild their networks. Yeah. Um and yeah. I, I that sounds <laughs> great, right? From like sitting back watching this happen, but like that guy, that group's life for the next 3 4 years done. Right? Yeah. Like there's no new initiatives, there's no new anything. Like he's pulling wiping everything. And I think yep. that's going to cause some emotional problems for a lot of those people. And that's <laughs> Absolutely. Like you know, the, the instant response for a domain administrator account being compromised is to rebuild directory directory. You cannot yep. continue with your existing compromised systems. It's a rebuild. Um, and, and, you know, and, and we can go through all the different scenarios, but all those companies that have had those, you know, SAML forgeries that have had their certificates been, been compromised, has had their accounts been compromised. The realistic approach, and I've I'd been helping a company respond to a ransomware case so over the holidays, and it's a rebuild. There, there's no taking what you have and continuing. Uh, and this, you know, this is where automation is crucial. If you've got automation, great, because you can do that much quicker. Uh, but yeah, right now, we're probably in a moment in time where many companies will have to rebuild from scratch. But I think that's a great yeah. opportunity to do that, to, to add this automation in now, right? Like in the past, there's been re like, there's always this like resistance to, to change or doing things like, ah, but if you're going to be doing it anyway, now's the right time to like go ahead and embrace the the, the new ways of doing things mm -hmm. and, and do more automation and, you know, uh, figure out yeah. ways to, to do that. 
And I think the the biggest thing that we overlook when we talk about the automation part, it's it remembers everything, right? Like mm-hmm. you're not going to remember every security setting you set two years ago. And right. so by putting it in code and automating it, it's like, oh, cool, it's automatically applied. Like I don't have to relearn these hard lessons that I forgot, uh, especially when it comes to security. Cause you know, something two years ago, like I, I probably don't remember, you know, like I don't remember why I set that setting, like, and I wouldn't have remembered if I manually built it this time. And And the cool thing is you can even leave a comment as to why you did it. Like, like (laughs) I do that all the time. (laughs) Posted notes everywhere. Yeah. Cause I'll I'll put in CVE numbers, right? Like if it doesn't make sense why I set a setting in a specific yeah. way, like I'll throw a CVE number in that comment so the that like, as I'm reading it later, like it's, it's for me. Um, it's the best way. So, so I'd like to kind of, you know, let, let's kind of close it up and, and, and kind of, I mean, cause this, this is going to, we, we, we might be talking about this in two weeks. We might be talking about this in two years. This is going to be going on for a long time. Um, I'm just like, you know, for me, this is a wake up call. I think, you know, it's a big wake up call for the industry. I think this, is, I mean, I think really, you know, Brad Smith's comments uh, at the CES trade show, I think that's the pivotal, you know, the realization that we really need to see. This is an attack on the entire industry. And for me, I think, you know, my, my lessons I've got from this is that, you know, I, I very seldom use the term sophisticated. Um, I, I kind of, you know, analyze lots of malware. I look at lots of incidents, you know, throughout my career. And this is up there probably in the top five of, I've had to deal with. Um, this is significant that, you know, the patience, the skill set that was involved for me, this really shows that cyber criminals, um, you know, and nation states are taking their game to a much higher level. I'd like to get, you know, all of your thoughts, you know, what, what is this, what is the realization? What's your kind of overall takeaway from this? Um, you know, what's, you know, what would you kind of, what have you learned from this, this, uh, you know, recent incident. So Jonathan, let's kick it off with you. With you. Yeah. So I think, I think the biggest thing that's going to kind of come out of this is the thing that everybody's kind of been just dragging their feet on the last couple of years is mm-hmm. kind of that like reputation yeah. around your whole dependency management and supply chain. If it's, you know, that kind of software and things like that, I think mm-hmm. it's going to start to get those things start coming. So I wouldn't be surprised if we see a bunch of companies now trying to do that kind of reputation based on, um, you know, like it's, it's difficult with like a SolarWinds product cause it's that, but like hopefully SolarWinds uses it if they're using like open source and things like that. And they can start to kind of score and say, Hey, you know, this, this package that you have in your thing had one brand new committer this month with like one change that he threw in here and threw into 30 other repositories with a brand new GitHub account. Right. Like I think those type of things just kind of brings more like risk scoring enables you to kind of tweak these models and make them that much more powerful because I think at the end of the day, AI and ML, the the best thing that's going to come out of that for the next, I think, 20 years is it's just eliminating a lot of the noise. Um, you still need a human sitting there kind of making these calls, but like eliminating that noise frees you up to do other like spelunking in your network and finding these like unique things that are happening. And I think we're going to we're going to continue on that with AI and ML for at least the next 20 years until they get like super smart. Yeah. So assisted yeah. intelligence, yeah, or yeah. augmented intelligence. Turns, Tur- yeah. you know, what what have you learned from this? What 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 will you change going forward? Um, an increased focus on risk management, uh, particularly you know third parties and you know your supply chain. But I think this allows us to have better conversations with those critical vendors and suppliers. Um, looking at your log aggregation strategies and micro segmentation. Um, you, you, you can't detect what 
you don't know exists. So it's back to the whole shadow IT component sometimes of making sure you have up-to-date asset and software inventories, you know, in your environment um, and, and really um, training. You know, at the end of the day, this, this is a, a human detected this. <laughs> um, and, and like Jonathan said, we, we're just going to need an inf- increased focus of eyes on glass. But mm-hmm. alert fatigue, you know, I've talked about this before, is it, real. Uh, it, it has to be manageable. Um, so um, I think the technology will evolve to the point where we're not boiling the ocean and we will get uh, a manageable amount of, of you know, um, you know, intel to, to act upon. Um, but it, it's just really, um, a lot of it's just, you know, holding on for the ride, but um, that defense in depth approach, uh, but it, this is all the exercise and risk management um, at, at the end of the day. Um, so just making sure that your capabilities are evolving and not stagnant and not static. And um, yeah, you, you have to be able, like we've said it a couple of times, pivot. You have to be able to pivot um, on a dime oftentimes because, you know, our environments and our worlds change literally every day. You know, one day it was like, you know, we evaluating cybersecurity now. Was this before or after solar winds? Like, I mean, I feel like solar it's winds after solar winds. I mean, I feel it's like as if like aliens landed, right? All of a sudden, our whole worldview would change if you know, alien. If we learned that aliens actually, you know, were visiting the the, the planet. Are they not already here? I, I mean, that. I don't want to. I was, I was, I was nervous about making the analogy. <laughs> So, Mike, Mike, what's you know what have you learned from you know even today's discussion, or you know even from what you've been reading uh, in the past? Yeah, I mean, I think so. Obviously, everything that Jonathan Terrence said, I think, and you, Joe, all applies, mm-hmm. right? I think um, there's all the stuff that we can do, but one of the things, and and uh, Terrence touched on a little bit, but I think this gives us an opportunity to really talk to the rest of the organization and use it as examples of why we do what we do, or why, or to use like that one person who is like, hey you know, at, uh, at FireEye, who was like, hey, there's this thing that's happening. I feel like this is weird that it's asking about this MFA. Why is it, you know, whatever. Like, let's celebrate that person. Let's use that as an example of like, hey, somebody brought this to the forefront. Somebody reported this. That's the right thing to do. And use those positive examples that come out of this to really reinforce what we want out of the security in depth includes everybody at the company. And this is what we're talking about. And this is how we this is a great example of how this works to, to, to prevent further problems. I think that's one of them. I think, you know, I'm really interested to see the attribution and how this all goes. Yeah. Was it a nation state? I think there's, there's no question that it has to be nation state backed. Was it, how was that done and, and why? I think I'm just, I just find fascinating. Um, it's not going to like change my day to day, but at the same time, like, you know, Joe, you're saying like, because of the profiteering aspect, it's, yeah. it could possibly be, this like company that this nation state knows about, but doesn't necessarily like do anything or maybe they're supported. But then I think about even in the US, um, there's laws that allow police departments to profit off of pulling people over and just confiscating <laughs> their stuff and then selling it at auction. So it's, it's completely conceivable that that organization is 100% a government organization that funds itself, you know, in part through whatever tax dollars or whatever budget they get from the government but also from whatever property they're able to seize and resell. Um, it's it, like if I was running a, a, a government agency, I would have no problem with like, hey, yeah, if you guys want to profiteer off of this, like in this state, if I'm, if I'm that type of person who's already looking to you know, run that type of an agency, 
I don't see why I would draw the line at profiteering mm-hmm. off of what I found. Um, I'm not saying I'm that person. I'm just putting myself in that in that yeah. role. Um, think- I'm not a terrible person. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, yeah. I am, but <laughs> yeah. I think I think for for me, the news today, what it does is it pivots me from this not being, uh, you know, let's say an espionage attack. It, it it changes it to being criminal. That's that's the different. That's the, the separation I have is that when you bring a monetary financial, you know, fraud and, and profit out of it, that's what changes it from basically an intelligence gathering espionage type of activity to profiteering, which is a criminal activity. And I think then that's where we get into the criminality side of things and holding countries against criminal uh, intentions. You know, so, so this is the difference for me is, 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 is where that crossover is starting to occur, is to start getting into that criminal side of things. Um, so it's been, awesome, it's been awesome having you all on the panel and the show today. This is, this is great. And it's, I think it's a timely uh, discussion. I think this is one that will definitely change our industry going forward. Um, and, uh, you know, listen to your views. And I think our audience are definitely going to get a lot of value. I'm really excited to even share with our, our audience today is that we've literally hit over 10,000 listens of our episodes. Uh, we launched this back in, in May of last year. And uh, we continue to have the episode every every two weeks. So if you're interested in listening to more, we've had some awesome guests to date. And we've got some really exciting ones still coming forward. So uh, that's, that's due to be released. So we're excited about the show. We're excited to have our amazing audience listen to our views and sometimes ramblings because we, we can go on for hours. This show could be, you know, five, ten. It can, it can be a complete series of, you know, one show. We, we just cut it into different episodes. Um, but I, I, you know, really glad the value that our audience are getting from, from our special guests that we have on, um, and, uh, you know, definitely subscribe to the show, um, you know, get the updates, you know, go back and listen to older episodes. You know, we've had some fantastic guests on like Josh Lasmanozo, we had Jessica Otto, um, and we've had, you know, great, uh, guests, Estonian government's been on. Um, so if you're interested in going back, listen to our older episodes, um, and we'll make sure to keep you up to date on the latest news. And, uh, you know, many thanks for listening in. So, you know, awesome, Mike, Terrence, Jonathan, it's always great to, to have you on. And hopefully this won't be the last time you'll on. We'll, we'll always try and grab you back on for later episodes. Um, so out there, you know, stay safe. Um, listen to us. Subscribe to the show. Um, Joe Carson from 401 Access Tonight. Mike, any last words? No, that's it. Uh, great show. Okay, take it away. Thank you, everyone. And talk to you soon. Take care. Learn how your team can get a free trial of Cybrae for Business by going to www.cybrae.it slash business. This podcast is also brought to you by Thycotic, the leader in privileged access management. To learn more, visit www.thycotic.com.